welcome back to another episode of Relative Pitch. My name is Lauren Green, joined by my hosts, Anthony Morris and Michael Brown. Um, so fellas, there's been a lot of interesting things happening um, in, I think, in the news and just in society lately. First of all, we finally have an outcome of the George Floyd um, trial and Derek Siobhan got convicted on all counts. Convicted. Okay. Convicted. You know what that means? That means he was guilty. He I, was wrong for I've doing it. For, for, for a long time. It's just crazy. And someone even said it. They were like, yeah, it would have been really, really, really hard for them to say the thing that they caught on camera, yeah, that didn't happen, you know? And so- well, they've done that before. <laughs> They, which they have exactly they have, they have they really have they've spun it before and so but for me it was seeing all those people who were outside of the courthouse when it happened like celebrating and even people the people who are crying more than anything because they saw what this meant for you know all those those poorly wronged victims of past police brutality situations who did not get the justice, if we even want to call it justice, that they deserved. Um, and so finally being able to see uh, someone be held accountable is really what it is. It's just accountability. It's not justice um, for what they did was something that still we don't see. And so that was something I think that we should, um, I don't know if celebrates the right word, but just to I don't know. It was a win in that sense. You know, it's progress towards what needs to happen. It's not the end goal, but it is progress. Um, because like like we've said, it's been happening for a long time. I mean, we can go back um, to Rodney King. That was filmed. A, a man getting beat uncontrollably yep. and broadcast on every news channel. But these people were found not guilty. And so here we are now with George Floyd um, and the video there, but there's been other videos between then and now that they have gotten off. And you know what? I, I'm tired of it, and I'm I am glad that we finally get some type of of people being are held accountable. Right. Um, he was wrong, and he knew it was wrong. Everybody knew it was wrong. And you know what? He didn't got clank clank. So on that case, I say next case. The court is adjourned. Court is adjourned, you know. And what was so unfortunate is, you know, as soon as we had that and we were, there was a moment of, you know, thinking, oh, things are going to change. We have the Micaiah Bryant shooting. Um, and this is a, this one is something because I've seen folks from both sides um say this like different conflicting things right um there's the video right and we see that in the video it looks as if she goes to stab the other girl now from what i had gathered from just reading and other things is that she was like it was a situation where she called the police and it was a she was getting jumped and she was in trouble she was trying to like protect herself i came from a family where if someone was trying to hurt you you better not get yourself hurt. So if I got to hurt back in order to protect myself, if that is the only way, then that's just, it's self-defense in some ways now. And that's where it gets the, 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 the situation that I think a lot of people were really 
uh, like just unnerved about or the point of this that people are more unnerved about is the fact that police, their job is to de-escalate situations, right? And the situation, the what, you know, we have seen, I saw fights on buses. I saw people get into fist fights in random places and it's been de-escalated without the use of a gun, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact that it's like, you know, cause we just saw the other situation the other week, right? Where, you know, the, the cop goes for her t- taser, but it's a gun. It's like, okay, well, yeah. You know, it's like, it's like how many more of these situations are we going to see that like, and someone was like, oh, well, the taser might not have been able to work or yada, yada, yada. Yes, it would have. And, and that's my thing is, you know, and someone saying most uh, bus drivers, teachers and other, you know, educators have had to break up fights before without killing someone, you know. And it's happened multiple times before. And so I don't want anyone to think that like U.S. go around, stab people. No. But at the same time, it was obviously a situation where she felt like she was in harm, that like she had to protect herself. And I just, I don't know. I, it's the whole idea of de-escalating the situation and using other tactics other than killing and then shooting four times. None. That's, that's my biggest thing with this. That's my biggest thing with this is you, did you really have to like maybe one shot foot something? And I don't know if you're not that good of an aim, then maybe you should have a gun um, is all I'm going to say, you know, and like, like a non-lethal shot. If anything, not saying this is a thing, but you have uh, not lethal options on your belt that is supposed to be for de-escalation of situation, even though this was like an at-home fight and, right. and I grew up seeing fights. So like, I'm pretty sure if I can get in and break up fights and stuff, exactly. I know a police officer can. So, uh, and I've had my run-ins uh, with breaking up fights. Child, let me, come on now. This, this was a little scared man. Just do your job, first of all. Um, and stop trying to power it behind a gun because yeah. evidently y'all people who have these guns y'all know how to how to use them properly so they need to be confiscated that's mm-hmm. what really needs to happen because you don't know how to use it i mean anybody has seen a video of someone getting tased right it is instant like you chick chick you're down or like maybe the superhumans can go one more step and then they're down you know what i mean like or He's wearing a, most policemen wear vest. They're bulletproof. Try to just take the knife out of her hands. I mean, I, I, I watched an instance of a, a, a female chase her boyfriend at the time with scissors. Mm-hmm. The cops didn't shoot her. They just grabbed her scissors. Oh. I mean, did she pull out another pair of scissors? Yes. But I mean, that's besides the point. (laughs) (laughs) She had like, she had three pairs of scissors. By the the end of the story, it was like three or four pairs of scissors. Like she was going to get something to happen that day. But that's besides the point. Like, I don't know. Like de-escalation is a huge thing. And I think killing or shooting, I understand, like, I understand why, like, I don't understand why he did the four shots. But in a instance of someone with a gun, that is what police do. They do is like, quick rounds blah, 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 to take them down with a gun that is harming other people not a female with yeah. a knife in a civil domestic kind of deal so i don't understand that yeah my thing is like 
it would be different if we saw any case with anyone holding any weapon going at someone um shot you know if that was what they you know in this case i think the chief said something like well because the officer was trying to protect a third person it was the right to deploy that i've seen videos of a white dude literally going up with a machete to a police officer and the, the police officer doesn't even reach for his gun okay so and it's a whole thing of like okay well those two guys maybe they're different So it's personality now. It's not just, it's not training. Now we're relying on personalities. No, not when it comes to your ability to kill someone. That's my problem with this is if the inconsistency of the, like the police is the problem. If we were seeing the same outcome for no, every person, no matter what they looked like, who they were, that would be different, but we're not seeing that. And that's the problem. That is the problem. Cause yeah, it could have been de-escalated. Could have been four, four times, four, four, four. There's just another name that another we name. have to remember because of police negligence. Ooh, and like, you know, I think this, this is why we're seeing so many organizations and um, companies and in the music field, we're seeing, you know, um, organizations like orchestras respond to the situations that are happening with police brutality and wanting to uplift um, POC artists in whatever way they possibly can. And so, you know, I think Detroit um, and a lot of other symphonies have started to do a lot of program. And, you know, we can talk about how we don't just want to do one program that's just at just a night of African-American composer. Night of, no, we don't want to do that. It's about integrating it into the, into where it's normal. It is a part of the actual musical canon, you know, of having minority composers always being heard, always women composers, always being heard, always being played. And, you know, you would think that this is something that not many, you shouldn't have a problem with. No one should go, I don't want to hear a composer who looks like that, you know? But you have some people, um, as we saw this past week from Twitter, um, there was a letter sent to the Detroit Symphony, um, the artistic leadership or whoever, from a patron that basically expressed their disinterest and I guess disappointment in the fact that the Detroit Symphony is trying to highlight the voices of um, minority composers. And this patron, is very similar to a lot of people we see who fight back against the Black Lives Matter movement. It's the idea that, oh, if you're uplifting one thing, you're putting another down. And it's no, we're uplifting it to bring it to the same place. That's, that's what you don't see. You think it's everyone's like this. That's not, how, <laughs> that's not how that is. You may be here, I might be like down here on the ground. And so someone's slowly trying to do this if that makes you feel some type of way, you don't understand your privilege. Then you're and that's, the problem. And you are the problem. Exactly. Because this is why we are in this whole predicament because you, a slight inconvenience for you, you want to go storm a capital, call the police, all of this, because it's a slight inconvenience for you. When you, for the whole history of the mm -hmm. world, you have been always the ones who have inconvenienced us, hmm. people of color, minorities, all of that. 
So if you feel some type of way that, oh my gosh, there is one black person that has been um, added to the program, then guess what? We don't want you. You may see yourself at the door or we can find an usher or guess what? Let me call the police because I feel attacked. Right. Since you always want to call them, guess what? I can too. Um, and you have a problem, guess what? You ain't got to come. And that's just that. Bye-bye. And that goes for all of you that feel some type of way. We don't want you here. Don't. We don't. Exactly. I mean, like, I want to know, like, what the problem was because she looked at the program. You didn't hear the music. You haven't heard anything. You just looked at a program. That's like the same thing as like judging uh, the book by its cover, mm. like that whole saying. And literally, if you look at the program, it's like not that much different. It's like slightly different, which is great. It's different, um, but it still has a C, still has this key same components of a symphony orchestra program. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like you're still gonna get your, you're still gonna get your fix but we're throwing in some different stuff, which I applaud DSO for doing, but it's like, she just judged, a bu- whoever this was, judged a book by its cover. Well, it's it's the, it's the same, like I said, it's the same people who you say Black Lives Matter and they go, they just said that my life doesn't matter because I am not Black. And it's like, okay. <laughs> Assumption is a thing. It's a terrible thing. It is a terrible, and ignorance is a, it doesn't mind wrong. Um, and again, it's this idea that if you do not understand privilege and how certain people in this country have been wrong from the get-go, because that is literally how our history is, if you don't understand how things affected us after a certain point, Jim Crow, redlining, how it still is a thing to this day, wake up. Just wake up. Just what I, I, there's, I don't know what else to, and at this point, it's not lack of it's not that they don't have the access to this information. They don't care about it. They don't care. They say, we all started the same place. You were born in the nineties or you were born like whatever at the same time as me. We had the same, I had to like work to get where I am. I'm sure you did, but I had to work 10 times harder than you to get to where we both are. Mm -hmm. And that is what they feel like is wrong. They're like, no, it's the same thing. I'm, I'm not privileged. I didn't have money growing up. That's not the only way you can have privilege. Let me stop. So, you know what, we can talk about this for a long, 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 long time, and we will. Oh, and for our audience, we will, we will continue to talk (laughs) about it. But as for today, um, please, please, please enjoy um, this beautiful interview we had with Dr. Corey Mills, which is the Associate Professor of Music Education at the University of Houston. So go ahead, take a listen. Hey everybody, it is so good to have Dr. Corey Mills with us. He is the Associate Professor of Music Education at University of Houston. First of all, thank you so much for being here with us. And, you know, we we have our own personal connection with you. So please give us a little background um, about you and where you come from, how you got to where you are and everything of that. Sure. Uh, First off, thank you for inviting me. This is a really exciting thing. And I've watched the progress of this podcast as you guys have developed it from kind of a 
the Wagnerism discussions into more full-fledged discussions with folks. So I'm really, one, as a former teacher of yours, very proud of you, but also very happy that you're having these conversations in these spaces about so many different things that are important and pertinent to what we do in music. Um, as for my background, it's really, I mean, it's, it's convoluted, I guess is the best way to put it. I grew up in a town called Titusville, Pennsylvania. Uh, the only claim to fame we have is that was the first working oil well drilled in 1859. We have that number seared in our memory because that's the only thing of substance that happened in that town. Um, and it's basically, if you look at a map of Western Pennsylvania, it's where the roads aren't, is where I'm from. Um, from there, I went to Vandercook College of Music in Chicago and had the chance to do that thing. Um, and that included you know, working Midwest and teching bands. There's no marching band, so I got a lot of chances to teach. And in that time, I was marching in an organization called the Cavaliers Drum and Bugle Corps. The person that came in and was the caption head my last year, his name is David Bertman, um, along with his team of people were all from Texas. And I was like, well, this is interesting. And Texas is an interesting place. And it transpired that after I graduated from Vandercook, there really weren't any jobs around Chicago that were interesting to me that I was qualified for. Most of them are like head director jobs. And I'm like, you know, a 21 year old know-it-all who really shouldn't be looking at those jobs. Um, and so I got a position as an assistant band director at Indian Springs Middle School in Keller ISD, which is just outside of Fort Worth, Texas, um, and taught in Texas for the next eight years. I taught at Indian Springs for a couple of years, at Klein Forest High School for a couple of years, and I was the head director at Waller High School for a couple of years, and then kind of got the grad school bug. Um, as some of you also have, have been infected by. And um, from there, I did my master's at the University of Houston with David Bertman, which was very fortuitous. Um, and that was in wind conducting and then wanted to continue because I seemed to be decent at the graduate school thing. Uh, got a graduate assistantship as the associate or assistant graduate director, however you want to put it, at the University of Washington's uh, Husky Marching Band and was doing my PhD in music education as well. It was kind of a, I got to kind of speak to all the things that I was able to do there. And then um, after my time at that program was done, I was what is called ABD, all but dissertation. Mm -hmm. And took a position at this little university that I'd never heard of, but I knew the teachers there. Um, I knew Dave Keeler and I knew Deb Traficante and uh, went down to this little school called Kennesaw State University where I met all three of you. And I was the, yes, hootie who, I was the assistant band director slash assistant director of the Marching Owls, the uh, inaugural year of the marching band's existence and taught there for two years and then had the opportunity to come back here to Houston. Uh, there was a music education opening that I applied for and we were able to move back, which was very fortuitous. We just had our, our first daughter uh, pretty, you know, about halfway through my time at Kennesaw and you guys were absolutely wonderful in supporting us through that. Um, an amazing baby shower if memory serves. And the, um, the drawback to Houston was one, I knew the area and I taught here for so long, but also my family lives in Texas now. They had moved from Pennsylvania and my wife's family is from just about an hour south of here. So it was one of those kind of, well, we should take this opportunity. And it, it bore out really well because we've had twins since then. And, and we are done, by the way, with kids that no more were outnumbered. That's as far as we're going. Um, and in, in throughout all of that, I have been able to keep teaching um, 
music education generally, but also the drum and bugle corps thing, as well as kind of all the things in between that, like marching band stuff and helping out with leadership and just kind of all the different aspects of what happens in, in at least instrumental music education um, have kind of peppered my experience to this date. And that is something that I'm really thankful for. And I recognize that I'm incredibly fortunate to have had the opportunities that I have had and to get to share them with my students, um, both old in the three of you and new in the students I work with here at Houston. So that's kind of my potted history um, of how I've gotten to where I am right now. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's funny that you say you're only there for two years because your presence there felt way longer than two years in a great way. Like I, I was so upset when I found you were leaving because it was my freshman year. And then I was like, I get to take uh, Professor Mills uh, class next semester or next year. And then it was like, he's not going to be here. And I was like, uh, because I had, there was one time where you needed instrument players for your, one of your lab classes. And I was like, hmm. I'll do it. And then just, I was just sitting there and I was like, I cannot wait to take this class. And then, yeah, you left me. You I'm left. sorry. <laughs> this is very kind of you to say, Anthony, but I, I, I do apologize that I disappointed you. That was never my intention. That's okay. That's okay. So your time in Texas, you've had a, a long time in Texas. So what are some of the things um, in Texas and in Georgia that really kind of speak to both places in music, music education wise? Because I know uh, Texas is looked at as like being a fantastic area for music education. And Georgia, I think is kind of there too. So uh, what are your like big takeaways from teaching in both of those states? So it's interesting because the topic of why Texas is different comes up a lot with our students because they don't know what they don't know. Many of them grew up in Texas. They don't know anything different other than the ecosystem that we have here. And there are strands of that that exist in a lot of places in the country, Georgia being one of the bigger ones, Georgia, Indiana, uh, Illinois, to an extent, Southern California. Um, there are these pockets and Texas is just probably the biggest pocket of the things that, that I've noticed that are commonalities. And one of them is this value for student participation in large ensemble activities, be it choir band, orchestra, or some other manifestation of that jazz band, things like that. Um, and that is a really strong thread that runs through that the ensemble paradigm is kind of the go-to for what music is, at least at the secondary level in high schools. Um, in part and parcel with that is a, a competitive drive mm -hmm. to do the competition thing uh, within that. And, and part of that I think is because you see something like a trophy as an easy way to show the acumen of the program you have, right? It's like, oh, we have, we have a good band program, a good choir program. They, they won this contest or they got a, a excellent rating or a superior rating or whatever the rating scale is. Um, and then, you know, the, the ranked, like we're first place sort of thing just kind of builds on that same sort of paradigm. And that exists in both places. But the interesting thing in Texas that kind of differentiates it from the other places I've, I've seen and worked in and collaborated and integrated with is this idea that somewhere back in the 40s, and no one's really sure exactly when, there are historians that can probably speak to this much more accurately than I can, but someone decided that football was going to be the thing in Texas. And if football was the thing, we needed something there to support football, and that's marching band. And so we need to make sure a marching band is supported in a direct way so that they can do the football thing. Yeah. 
And that doesn't live as strongly in other places in the country in terms of the the very tight marriage with athletics that marching bands specifically, but band in general has here in Texas. Um, I remember when I was teaching high school, we would take bus trips to away games, every single one. And my budget for buses was probably a third of my overall budget. And that was around, I want to say 35 or $40,000 a year that we would spend on buses to go to and from away games and contests and other things. It wasn't just for football. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that idea of the rising tide lifts all ships bleeds into the rest of the fine and performing arts, you know, where choir and orchestra are adjacent to, in many people's minds, band. Um, I don't view it that way, but others do. They benefit from kind of this, well, if we're going to fund band this way, we have to fund choir and orchestra this way too, as well as theater and dance and all the other manifestations, visual art. So it's, it's fortunate in a state like Texas that we have advocacy, even in the state legislature, there are lobbyists that will go and advocate for us that again, that doesn't exist as strongly in other states. Our centralized kind of power structure and support system is much more robust here than really anywhere else in the country. Um, But that being said, places like Georgia can point to Texas and go, look, they're doing this thing and they have this kind of funding, this kind of support. Why can't we do that? Mm-hmm. And allow for the kind of the keeping up with the Joneses aspect of things to creep in and help them. And we in Texas are happy for that. I can tell you that right now. We want everyone to have access to the kinds of experience our students get. Now, I'm not saying that the system here in Texas is perfect because it's not. Um, there's really no perfect system, but the one thing we do have going for us and we're hoping we we always hope that it benefits everyone else is a robust amount of support for us both at the state and community level to keep doing the things that we do and build on those as our communities change and their values and wants adapt and evolve over time wow yeah the so for me you know these both of these guys were drum majors you know and so whenever we became friends and everything that was a, a whole topic because I think that's even how y'all don't even know you met for the first time but you you did and that was a whole thing but um what'd you say Michael you I beat him no he didn't I, oh, I did I beat him thank you <laughs> Anyway, so basically, you know, they would have these conversations and I would be like, I- I've never done marching band ever, you know, because I went through a six through 12 fine arts magnet. And so that was never anything that I got to experience because we didn't have regular sports. I think that like public schools would normally have. And so it was like this whole thing going into college. People are like, oh, are you going to do marching band? Are you going to do marching band? And they both did. And it was something I was kind of scared of because it was like foreign to me. I never understood what went into it and all the things that came with it. And so like for you, as like going through marching band programs, yourself teaching them, going through DCI and everything, how have, how how have you seen marching band affect you, like your growth, like as a musician, as an educator, and how do you see it affect like your students? That's a great question. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll tell you, there's a really interesting paper that if you haven't come across yet is well worth reading. It's called The Moral Ends of Band by a guy named Randall Everett Alsop. He's at, um, where's he at? Columbia Teachers College in New York City. And he in there kind of encapsulates this idea of what is the purpose of a music education. And he kind of distills it down from uh, John Dewey to talk about what are the moral ends of education, like, and not moral in the sense of, you know, like, oh, you're stealing money, but like moral in the sense of what is the underlying power behind this thing for us as a society and us as individuals. 
And he phrases it very interestingly. He kind of draws a distinction between, you know, something like a DCI where you go to watch a show and the goal of your goal as a spectator is to be entertained and to watch excellence, right? Similar in a way to going to watch the Atlanta Symphony or the New York Phil. You don't really care how much better Chris Martin is today than he was the other day. You just care that he played really well on the day you were there. And that's the paradigm that also sees drum corps living in. It's this very performance oriented, excellence oriented thing. And school music by contrast is about student development. It's about how much better that fourth clarinet is than the last time you saw them. And that should be a part of the ecosystem in there. And what I experienced <clears throat> as a member of drum corps, as a person marching in marching bands when I was a, a kid and also teaching them is the flux between those things, depending on where I was and, and who I was doing it with. And so I actually had the great fortune to march in the Cavaliers when I did, because the focus there was not about winning, though we did end up winning quite a bit by the beginning of the, the, the century, I guess you could call it. Um, the focus was, are we better today than we were yesterday? Are we working smarter rather than harder? And are we really maxing out what we're able to do given the people and the design that we have? That was really the, the guiding principle there. And the scores were kind of like, well, that's gonna happen if we do our job, if we work and get better every day. The, the scores will come and if they don't, that's not a big deal. Um, now, granted, I won in the time that I was marching and teaching there, five DCI titles. And so I'm not gonna say that winning is not fun because it is, it, there's no two ways about that. But that the focus wasn't explicitly on winning gave me insight into the values that also talks about. And when I read that, it was kind of like this lightning bolt hit me of like, oh, this, this is in words, the thing I've kind of been bouncing around in my head. Now, in terms of my students, they come from, you know, schools and backgrounds that are any number of things, all the way from what Michael said about Anthony of, you know, I beat him, like that sort of mentality, which is fine if, if you're friends and you're messing around. But some people come from programs where like winning is the thing and, and you're told by your director that, you know, if, if we don't get a one or we don't get a superior or whatever, then we are letting down 50 years of history at this school or, or whatever. And I'm not thinking of anyone specific when I say that, that's kind of an abstract hypothetical, but we know things like that exist all the way to, are you having fun? Great. Let's just keep doing that and not really worrying about competition. And so they grapple with that same thing because the paradigm here in Texas is very competitively driven. But the interesting thing about the way we do things in Texas is that we're measured against ourselves or against a standard versus against each other on the vast majority of the contests you come across. Our marching band and concert band stuff is against a standard. You don't want two, three, four, or five, kind of like LGPE in that way. There's no ranking. The only time ranking comes in is when we get to the state level and there's only a certain number of groups that do that. And so this whole like, I was first place, you were second place really doesn't come into the conversation for every single kid in the way it does in maybe some other states. And so the, the things that I've gotten from it are that awareness of if we work hard, and we work smart and we really focus on just getting better every day and don't worry about what the, the outcome is going to be. Excellence often follows from that. And in the same vein, this idea that <clears throat> some person's opinion of you on a given day only has the power that you give it to have mm -hmm. is another thing that I was able to walk away from my experience teaching and marching and designing, though not everyone believes that. And I recognize that. But in my opinion, 
you know, this is a person who is human. They're very fallible. You know, if you look at the ways that scores populate across contests, you see a lot of, honestly, a lot of uh, correlation between things where like it's correlated above 90%, the rankings of the scores in some of these contests would suggest that maybe they're not actually evaluating what they're seeing on the field. They're evaluating what they think other people want them to. And there's a whole, not a literature in there, but a whole potential for a literature about that sort of thing. And so the two things I try and teach my students about this, this marching band thing, besides the design and the logistics and getting the buses down the roads is teach your students that doing good work will reap its own rewards, whether it's a one or two or a, you know, first place or second place. And don't worry about the things you can control in the judge's opinion you have very little control over in the end. You can control what you show them. And then beyond that, you have given up your ability to affect the outcome beyond just your performance. So I hope that answers your question. I feel like I rambled a bit. No, that was, that was amazing. You know, just knowing about, I guess, how people go or you specifically go in like your mindset when it comes to um, like marching and just teaching in general. That's, that's exactly the answer I was looking for. So oh, excellent. Good. To piggyback off of that, I am a huge fan of marching man. It's like my, I feel bad saying this. It's like my guilty pleasure because half the people in the professional musician world like view it bad because some organizations not all don't like you know teach health like the health of playing sometimes they go for the result over the progression of the student like you were talking about and then others are like all about like we just want to make you great musicians by the end of the summer if we win we win if we don't we don't it's just like we're teaching music and I was wondering like how you feel about like that whole like dichotomy in the world of just like we hate marching band because it's just blah or we love it because it's this there's no like it's like there's bad apples yes but how can we view past those bad apples right and i think the thing you want to you want to guard against in those situations is that it's not just bad apples you want to look for bad trees and you know that is there are places where that exists you look at the the marching arts i can't remember it's mason is the the acronym Marching Arts Safety and Inclusion Network, something like that. It's a, a whistleblower location for people to report things that are not right happening in Drum and Bugle Corps. And I think Oregon Crusaders were kind of in their crosshairs for a while and rightly so. Um, and many of the cadets thing that happened several years ago with George Hopkins was another thing where the same people that are doing that were kind of talking and that led to them creating this organization to yeah. serve as a, a reporting point. So in terms of people in the professional world, especially in the performance world, kind of maligning drum and bugle corps or marching band in general or pageantry arts kind of more broadly, I think there was a point in time when things like drum corps especially, but marching band too, were taught in a way that was not very much in contact with what you would call best practices. Um, and many of the people that hold those opinions about marching organizations grew up in those eras in the 70s and 80s when, I'll be honest, if you look at the, the pedagogical acumen of the people teaching back then, they were good people often who had limited information and were doing the best they could with what they had. That's viewed through the best lens, right? The, the, the not great lens would be that they were just beating children until they got a higher score, which also happened. I'm not saying either one is the only thing. Mm -hmm. but the organization and the activity has kind of 
undergone a massive transformation in the last 30 or 40 years to having professional educators in front of the students by and large, to having people who have some sort of training in front of the students, helping them do, like you pointed out, Michael, like things that are healthy for their face. Like we're not going to you know, completely turn your face into hamburger every day, though there are days where we need to do that because we have these things to get done. We're still going to be mm -hmm. conscious and conscientious about the, the long-term effects here. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that aspect of things, people that kind of like just shoot it down without even giving it a second thought, I think they're reacting to something that isn't rooted in actual reality. They're, they're reacting to something that is their perception that mm -hmm. they have not updated that model in I don't know how many years. And the people that are like, no, there's nothing but good in marching band. I think they are, or drum corps or anything, are operating from a similarly detached place where they aren't looking at the reality of the situation. Like we know that there are things that happen in the organizations, both small and large, that are not the best thing for the kids. And where we ignore those for the sake of, well, they got you know first place or they had a really fun show that year, we do it at our own peril. Because at some point, it's going to be, I apologize, my dog is talking to someone. Um, at some point, it's going to be that the thing that is going wrong is going to affect you directly. And that you didn't say anything to the people that needed to hear it because you were more worried about this other thing, competitive or whatever, then that's just not right for, by, for my money and in my experience. Mm -hmm. It's just it demeans you as a human being to put the value in the outcomes or in the tradition over the experience of individual students who make up the tradition and who create the competitive outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I think me and Lauren have talked about this and Anthony too. That's something I feel like I wish was pushed more in my music education, like through every level is it's not about the outcome. Like I remember like through KSU, I was like, every time I perform, it has to be perfect. No, you just had to be better than the day, the day before. Like even in a performance, you mess up. Oh, well, did you do something better? Great. If you didn't, how can you learn from it? And I feel like that paradigm, especially in the world of performance and pageantry arts, um, is like push the process or trust the process over what comes out every single day, because the process is what's going to win in the end. Right. And that goes for, you know, the marching band show that you're working on, or it goes for your auditions at, for major symphonies. Like, you know, if you make second round this time and you made first round last time, then okay, great. That means you're moving forward. Even if you didn't get the, the position, because all of these things that are competitively driven have one winner generally. Right. And so that means there's a lot of people that aren't going to be first place. And so there has to be some value in what they do for them personally, individually, and also as a group to make it worth anyone's while. And the more mm -hmm. you tip the scales towards winning is the only thing at all costs, you set yourself up for disappointment every single time. Absolutely. <laughs> we had um, um, Professor Billy Hunter on here last week and that was really something he talked about when talk, I think talking about just practicing in general and getting that outcome. And he, we talked about meditation a lot, but the main thing he pointed out is exactly, I think what we just said was you know, you think about the process, not the outcome, because if you get the process in your head, like this is what I have to do to get that, you're going to get it. You know, if you keep continue doing that process, it's just, it's naturally going to happen. So yeah, that's, that's something I think that we're mainly focused on the outcome, like the recording that we want or the, the performance that we want, but we're not thinking about 
what do I want to like tell the audience in this performance? You know, what do I want these people to hear whenever they hear me? Um, yeah, that's definitely a whole double-sided thing. I think that goes on within the music community now. Completely. And it, it lives in every aspect of what we do, whether it's elementary music all the way up through the most rarefied areas of performance on any instrument like that. That's kind of the, the framework that lives underneath our awareness and experience as human beings, which I think is really interesting that you articulated the way you did of this kind of this two-sided equation that you have to balance within you and your balance, Lauren, might be different than Anthony's, might be different than Michael's, and that's okay too, as long as you're focusing on that balance. Mm -hmm. um, and I did not know about the network that uh, you mentioned about if something happened, um, you know, here's a place. And so hopefully everybody that is listening, maybe part of DCR or anything like that, there is a place for you because I, um, I think it was like last summer or around that time, uh, Twitter, a lot of people who um, marched in DCI, uh, there was multiple accounts of really kind of mental abuse and everything, and they really detailed it on Twitter. And I'm just glad that there is something, uh, a network where they can report these things because uh, there are so many people who are turned off from the activity who still have some um, effects after it. And so I'm just glad to know that there is a, a space for that. I'm thank God it is. Yeah, it's it's a very much needed thing. And they they've done a really good job at at Mason of, and I'm not even sure if that's actually they don't want to pronounce the the, <laughs> the uh, acronym. I apologize if I'm wrong, but they've done a really good job of being very conscientious about okay, look, if you're going to report something to us, we are going to investigate it before we release it to the world. Mm -hmm. On, for a couple of reasons, one of them being we don't want to expose anybody to liability or, right. you know, basically we, we believe you, but we want to make sure that we have all the ducks in a row before we start moving forward with this so that it has the best chance of yielding a result that's helpful to the people that are reporting it and the other people who are affected who might not be reporting. Mm -hmm. So they've done, I think, a really good job of ratcheting up their best practices over their evolution. So kudos to them for that. And I agree. I'm glad that there is that reporting portal for people to turn to if and when they come across things like what you pointed out, Anthony. Yes, yes. Um, so as a professor of music education um, and that lives in Texas, uh, Texas kind of came in um, uh, kind of under fire in the past three months ago, less than three months ago, with uh, the bassoon scandal that happened. Um, so what were your thoughts on on that action that really kind of put all eyes on Texas? Well, we like to believe that all eyes are always on Texas, but <laughs> um, that being said, <laughs> I on your audience. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the I, I somewhat and interestingly refer to that as bassoon gate, um, which is easy to remember the thing. And the, mm -hmm. um, I will say that my reaction to it was complicated and it's complicated for a couple of reasons I'm happy to talk about. And I'm glad that you guys are, are still working through this with, with your various guests who would come into contact with it as a thing. Um, you know, the, that was during TMEA and TMEA was virtual this year. Mm -hmm. And the thing about that, that is different than it's ever been was that people could screenshot things very easily. Mm -hmm. And so the person presenting that, his name is Frank Chambers, um, was presenting it in from the perspective of building better bassoon players, which 
in itself is kind of like, well, that's kind of a weird way to put that, but okay, if that's the way you want to view it, go ahead and view it that way. And I know Frank. Frank has been a person that's taught for groups that I've been a, a director at a couple times. He, he's a saxophonist on top of being a bassoonist. He was in, I forget which one of the Blast incarnations he was in. It might've been Cyber Jam or Blast 2 or somewhere in that, not the original London cast, but somewhere after. Um, and so he would come in and work and he was a great teacher for us. He was really good with all the kids, no matter what kind of community I was working in, he was just fantastic with them. And so for him to present that, I was like, well, this is kind of strange. And then I saw the screenshot of the slide and I'm like, well, that's really not right. And the, my next thing was, that's not really Frank. That's not the Frank that I know mm -hmm. to approach that with that kind of one dimensional, very like, not even mechanistic, like this very almost uh, transactional yes. uh, approach to students. Um, and I was like, that's, that's really weird. And that happened, I want to say that kind of started to break on Friday night of TMEA into Saturday. And so we were, as a faculty, kind of dealing with that because Frank is also an alumnus of the University of Houston. And so we were like, okay, we, we need to, one, wrap our arms around this and figure out what's going on. And two, be prepared for anyone kind of pointing a finger at us. Um, and so we had kind of gone through and looked at our curriculum for individual for instrument pedagogy and found a couple things that's like, well, that's, you know, we don't ever address it that way, but it's in the writing. So we need to go through and make sure that what's in the writing reflects how we teach. And so we, we did that revising. Um, and then the freeze happened in Texas where the entire state was shut down for a week because uh, we don't like to regulate our utilities, yada, yada, yada. That's a political conversation we don't need to have today. Um, I have very strong feelings about that, but that's because I have three kids who were sleeping in you know, winter coats in the middle of our living room with the fire on. Um, and that is not something that I ever thought would happen in the state of Texas, but here we are. All that being said, that week off kind of let things gestate and ferment in an interesting way in the way we were thinking about stuff. Um, long story short, if you look at what Frank had up there on his slide and take that as the place to go from, like this is the Moses down from the mountaintop information, it is unquestionably reprehensible. And the, the part of it that is the most reprehensible is the way it views the student, the way it kind of treats the student as a commodity, which is not right. Now, I don't think Frank views it that way. His letter of apology, I think, highlights that he kind of saw the error of that presentation and the way he was viewing things. Um, and knowing Frank and talking with Frank, I, I do think that his apology was legitimately heartfelt and that he had grown. And honestly, he was more towards the spectrum of what he showed in that letter than he wasn't before the thing even happened. Like he's a pretty liberal sort of person in terms of progressive thoughts and, and feelings. Um, but it did raise a question that I think was really valid. And the, I think the firestorm that it created highlights that these perceptions of the way that band directors view students aren't restricted just to what Frank said. It kind of struck a nerve because people perceive that as being real. And I've met band directors and worked, not worked with band directors, fortunately, but met band directors and interacted with band directors who seem to veer towards that side of looking at kids as commodities. And I've never thought that was right. I never approached it that way. And the beginner fitting process, which is kind of what he's talking about, of finding the, the students and helping them find the instruments that they need to play. All of those points that he highlighted 
are points that are helpful for a director to know to help the student. And we actually had this conversation with my students in our band director methods class. You know, things like the stable home thing is not, that's the only one that's like, well, that doesn't really make any sense. But if a student has financial issues, it's good for a director to know because we have to support them. It's a challenge we have to help the student overcome if they want to play something like bassoon or clarinet or any instrument that requires an amount of money, reeds for instance, or upkeep or anything like that. Same with private lessons. If there's a kid that has showing potential, they're showing work, but they can't afford private lessons, that's why you have band boosters. That's why you have uh, you know activity accounts. That's why you have budgetary monies set aside to help these students. Um, you know, the, the things like their intellectual abilities and things like that, I, looking at it as a barrier to entry is the least helpful and least good thing that could come out of that. But looking at it as information that you as a teacher need to know along the way to help the student maximize their experience in music is a much healthier place to be. And it's so what he had on the slide, if you view it as a barrier to entry, it is wrong hundred percent. It is reprehensible. If you view it as information that a director needs to know to help the student, it becomes a healthier paradigm. And I think the fact that social media kind of did the thing it does, um, which is fan the flames, highlights that the perception that exists about maybe Texas, but kind of competitive band in general is hewing toward that transactional nature when I'll be honest, the vast majority of directors I've worked with and collaborated with and spoken to are much more towards the, this is a set of information that we need to know to help the student be better and not be better, but have a better experience and to help them grow as a musician. And so it, it produced, I think, a really healthy conversation here in Texas about people. We've actually had in, in my band director methods class, we bring in panels of people about every four or five weeks um, to talk about various topics. And every single one after that, we made it a point to work in the conversation somehow about maybe not bassoon gate specifically, but kind of that general topic. And everyone has been very clear about, you know, there is that temptation to view kids as commodities, to view the student as a means to an end rather than an end of, in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. And from there, they get to actually tell my students about, you know, here's how I struggled with it. Here's how I wasn't good at that when I was younger, but I, here's how I've changed, which is great for my kids to hear as undergraduate music education majors who are going to go out and do that thing in a few short years so that they, as the next generation, can approach it, one, with the critical lens of questioning tradition for tradition's sake, like, okay, is that really what we want to do? Is that really how we want to approach this? But then also seeing that the people that they're working with aren't perfect, they've made mistakes, they've gotten better and changed over their careers. And my students are now freed to have that same sort of experience, but building from the place that their elders have gotten to and moving forward from there. Yeah, there was a, in like, everything to what you just said thank you you know because it definitely helped having someone who you're you know you're there you were there whenever all that that situation occurred and you know you're familiar with the person who the situation happened with um when we had dr cynthia johnson turner on uh gosh what was that a month or so ago it's been a while um but the that was when it was kind of more fresh and the thing about it is because she mentioned how whenever the apology came out 
that she felt as if it was genuine, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think any of us disagreed with her. All I said, um, and I do like to instigate sometimes, you know, be devil's advocate. But the, what I did say was, you know, there, whenever I say something, if I said something right now with my whole chest, tomorrow, that's not going to change or the next day, or the day after that, or the day, like, cause I said it and I meant it, you know? And so the idea, and we've, we've been seeing it a lot happen with social media and a lot of things this past year, you know, companies or organizations, people saying, public figures saying certain things, they're getting backlash for it and then changing it. And then it starts to make us question, like, was this genuine or not? So anytime we see, I see a public statement, like a formal apology, I do have to squint at it for a little bit. Cause I'm going, so what, what did you see in this? What do you see in this now that you couldn't see by yourself a few days ago? And um, it's, it's perspective, obviously of just knowing. And I think the empathy of just also understanding how another person would view something that you would say, um, because as a minority, that would have never ever crossed my mind to go, I'm going to think about how to make someone better in the terms of how to make my program better or like a program better and not thinking about the student individually but the whole machine because that's what it was kind of coming off as um itself or the, the system itself and so i think it is really important that the we re, the people reacted to it the way that we did because it showed that first of all yeah it was wrong um it was completely wrong the mindset was wrong um and it did expose kind of those hidden i feel or maybe not hidden feelings of how people view those really highly competitive programs and the way that they manufacture those students who come out or if it's student oriented or if it's product oriented and i think that's the biggest thing and so um, not saying I didn't think the apology was genuine or anything, but it's very hard for me to imagine someone changing that quickly because of things happening. You know, was it a response or was it a genuine like change of character? And I'm sure they have more to say about it, but that's just my my two cents about the situation. Well, and I, I think your your reaction to any apology is the right one to have. That we all shouldn't just go like, okay, yeah, sure, yeah, I'm going to accept your apology and move on. It's like my daughter spills milk and she apologizes. I'm going to accept her apology because she's five and she spilled milk. Like that's a different sort of thing than this. And I agree, personal change takes time. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll be honest, like the, <clears throat> I started my process of becoming more aware of my own internal biases and inter- in, in the ways I view the world when I was a doctoral student at the University of Washington because I came into contact with a lot of people who were very much more progressive than I was. Um, in the ethnomusicology space specifically, but kind of the music education in general. And it's taken me, I'm still working through it. I'm not perfect yet. And probably never will be, but the journey is kind of the goal here. But I think anytime you see an apology, you should squint at it. I think you should think about it and really reflect. And I'll, I'll say from, from the, the little that I've talked with Frank since, he um, basically kind of went into not seclusion, but he did a lot of reading, he did a lot of reflecting, he did a lot of asking for help. He reached out to people, people reached out to him and he had a lot of conversations with them. And so he was never one that was like, oh, we're going to view these kids as commodities as his default, though it came across that way. He fully acknowledges that. But I think he would join you in going, yeah, question what I said, put it up against your criteria for what a legitimate apology is. And if you don't accept it, that's okay. But know that this is coming from this place in me from where I'm standing and I think that's important for us in this space because, you know, social media creates this 
mechanism by which we can be judged by our worst day. And, and nobody really wants that. I mean, we've all had days where we've done really stupid stuff or just had a really, like a really poor choice. And nobody wants that to be the thing that follows them for the rest of, the rest of their lives. But at the same point in time, it's a part of us, right? It's a part of who we are and makes up our background and our personality and all these things. And so it's complicated. It's, there's really no easy answers, but I agree, Lauren, I think you're exactly right to not fully trust with open arms, every apology that comes across your, your social media feed, especially from corporations, because we know their incentive is not necessarily to be morally right, but is to make a profit. And if moral righteousness allows for the profit, then they're going to go with that direction. That being said, Steering them in that direction can sometimes have unintended consequences that are positive, right? And that's part of like how we make change is not by moral purity all the time. It's by aligning all the incentives to speak to creating the greater good. And if sometimes that involves corporations making more money from it, but the benefits outweigh that one thing, then, then sometimes that's the way we have to go, even though it's not the, the best way. That's true. That's true. Um, and a little kind of on the same way, but a little bit different, same, same with Texas. Um, I saw that you um, did a, a presentation called Investigating Diversity in State Concert Band List. Right. And it really uh, was very interesting to me because this is my first year teaching in Florida and we had MPA and I was going through the concert band list and I was very disappointed and the diversity of music. I'm sure not surprised though. Yeah, no, this I'm not. And you know, I'm from Georgia and I know the Georgia list. And when I say Georgia has way more diversity on their state list than Florida. And growing up, I've always heard Florida has a great music education system, you know, all of this. And I'm literally looking at the repertoire um, for like a level three, which is, you know, like high school, right at the beginning of high school. And it took me two weeks to find something that I was fine with on a personal level and that was uh, that will actually help the kids develop and everything of that sort. And I, I went back and I looked at Georgia List and I was like, okay, I would have picked this song, this song, this song, here we go. And that might be just my bias towards Georgia and I'm more familiar with Georgia, but and in general, I was like, this isn't diverse whatsoever. So I really, when I saw that um, on Facebook from you, I was like, I want to see this, but I'm also in school while this is going on. So can you just like kind of explain what were your findings and um, some of your conclusions that you came to? Well, I think to frame it all, you're experiencing with the Florida MPA list is one that could be replicated in most of the states that I examined for that study. Um, I have the good fortune to be working with an, an organization called the Institute for Composer Diversity, which is based out of Fredonia. Um, Rob Deemer is the person that started it, and I am the head of analytical activities. It sounds very fancy. Basically, I stare at spreadsheets a lot. Um, and what that amounts to is the thing you're asking about. We're looking at diversity from the perspective of composer diversity. So basically, you know, looking at just generally who are our white male composers, white female composers, male composers of color, female composers of color, kind of those very simple like categories. Mm -hmm. And what we found across the 24 states that we looked at that, that we could find their state music list publicly available or someone was willing to share it with us um, 
and assessed it, went through and found the composers uh, who were basically, we could identify where they fit into the categories we had created. Um, staying away from LGBTQIA only because in some of the states we're dealing with, that is not something that is going to support those people staying on that list necessarily. We don't want to out anyone in a professional setting who doesn't want to be out. And that's a very consequential thing for someone to be open with publicly. And so we didn't want to take something from a private room that we knew personally and telegraph it into a, a professional space. So that's why we stayed away from that. Mm -hmm. um, and what we found was that across all states, the vast majority of pieces, unsurprisingly, I think as Lauren kind of hinted at, are written by white guys. And this is just wind band. This is not orchestra. This is not anything. It's about 94.5% of all the pieces. There's about 60,000 pieces we've looked at um, that were written by white men. Uh, the next kind of tier down of the remaining five-ish percent, about two and a half percent are written by uh, white women, about two and a half percent are written by men of color and less than 1%, far less than 1% actually are written by women of color. Um, no, that is just wind band. And that is just what's on state music lists. We've done similar analyses for CBDNA. So looking at performance reports on CBDNA, it's a similar percentage. I think it's more closer to 92% are by white men, but still over 90%. If we look at one of the other things we do with ICD is look at orchestral programming trends um, mm -hmm. and counting them as, you know, if you have Mussorgsky on this one, we're going to count Mussorgsky once uh, rather than like per service. So if you have three concerts, you're only going to get credit for one um, <clears throat> in terms of the composer that you picked. And it's about 88% white men. Um, and the vast majority of those are dead white men, which is unsurprising in the orchestral space. But in the wind band space, it's a little less so. It's like that's more of a, a newer beast. Um, and so this kind of trend that you see populating across all of these things suggests that there are barriers to entry, at very least, for people who are not, in this case, white men, to get into that space. Um, and those barriers are probably more than one variable. It's probably a combination of access, exposure, the ability of some, some people to get into universities to study the thing that they want to do, if that's the path they choose to take. Um, there's probably these publishing houses who are very pragmatic because they have to turn a profit and profit margins are pretty slim. They have to go with the thing that works and they're gonna go with the thing that works that looks like the people that have done it before. And the vast majority are, as you can imagine, white men. Um, all that being said, within that same idea, there are overrepresentations from individuals within each of the other categories. So I call it the Anne McGinty effect. If you look at the lists of non-white male composers, Anne McGinty has hundreds upon thousands of pieces in these lists. Mm -hmm. And so do people like Richard Sesedo, uh, people like William Owens. Mm -hmm. So there are, uh, Carol Britton Chambers, who's a Texas resident, has a couple, has, is actually starting to gain quite the following, Julie Giroux, uh, Jody Blackshaw. Um, these are all people who appear kind of in outsized comparison to a bunch of people who have like maybe one or two pieces who are also people that are non-white men. And so generally the findings are that this pattern is consistently replicated across pretty much any spectra you look at in instrumental music. We haven't really looked at choir that's starting to come online. Um, and 
that is, we hope, going to be a little bit more diverse, but we don't hold any illusions that it's going to be a complete difference from the wind band and orchestral worlds. Mm -hmm. And so the, the why of it is, is the question to ask, but also the what are the trends within that? So if you look at the Georgia and the Florida lists, what are the differences there? I'll tell you just from my personal experience going through and scrubbing those lists and cleaning the data, Florida is much more transcription heavy. It's a lot more what I would call old school. Yeah, um, and Georgia is a little bit more modern in the sense that they don't have as many transcriptions. They have a few more new works yep. and the works tend to be from a more diverse set of composers than Florida, but I can't point you to the numbers because I've done that analysis yet to, to look at, the, at that level of detail within those lists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I, I, just me scouring through the list, that's what I saw was a lot of transcription pieces and pieces that were transcribed in like 1950s. Um, I think the biggest name is Joseph Crimes. Um, mm -hmm. He transcribed a lot of pieces and when you look at the list, it's literally crimes, 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 the whole time. And I'm like, okay, but where, where are the rest of these pieces, the newer artists? And I guess Florida is in that very old school. So I picked uh, Make Our Garden Grow, arranged by crimes. And that, and I mean, Make Our Garden Grow, I love that piece, but that's, that's probably one of the newest pieces they have, besides if you want to do like, a level six, and I, I think maybe, I don't even know if Omar Thomas has made it on there, but it's like that type of level. And I just know that there are level three, four pieces by more diverse composers that can be on the list. And I don't know what their criteria is about recommending it. This is only my first year, but mm -hmm. I'm definitely going to try my best to get more diversity um, here. But I'm just one in a whole big state of Florida. so. Well, well, there are many other people that are, that are trying to do that in Florida, too. You might want to reach out to Tremont Kaiser, who's over, okay. I think, at UCF. Yes. Yes, he's, um, he's, he's a member of another group that I work with called um, On The List, which is about changing state music lists to be more diverse. Mm -hmm. And so he's, he's definitely doing some good work there. But it really boils down to, in Florida, the people who are allowed to recommend new pieces are practicing teachers. And I think they kind of draw the line. Anybody mm -hmm. outside of that can't really recommend a new piece. And so it's a, it's a, from within the network, they want to see that push so that you're interested in that. Anthony, I think is fantastic. And Tremont might be a person to reach out to, um, to, you know, see who else is in there and connect you with other people doing that thing. Yes. He's right down the street from me too. So I'm literally 30 minutes away from UCF. So yes, yes, yes. And I'm, I'm just thankful that you were doing all the analytical work um, because it definitely needs to be broadcasted around so thank you thank you thank you yeah and i mean i'll be honest the the idea came from the conversations that started two three years ago now about how you know the oscar's so white and that whole thing but then looking at the arts it's like okay we know it's not diverse but how not diverse is it like how how not how bad is the problem but what are the actual boundaries that we're looking at mm -hmm. of how this looks and it kind of came out to be a little bit worse honestly than i thought it was um, and one of the things that I've, and this is actually new, I, I haven't announced this publicly yet because it just got approved a couple of weeks ago. Um, we, I was uh, given a, a very small grant here at the university to do a pilot program looking at commissioning a grade three band work. So kind of thinking about that upper level middle school or lo lower level high school, kind of that grade three is usually the biggest list because it serves so many different groups. 
um, from an ability level standpoint and commissioning a composer who is from an underrepresented category, basically not a white man um, <laughs> to write a piece. But part and parcel with that, we would target districts. Houston is a city that is majority minority. So essentially there are no, there's no one demographic that's the majority in the city. Um, and it's not just Anglo and Hispanic. It's actually, there's a huge Asian population. There's a, a sizable uh, black population. And so we have, we're a pretty good mix. We're one of the most diverse cities in the country. And so I was able to identify districts in the city that were majority minority as well and target their middle school campuses, mm-hmm. majority minority again, and reach out to them. And we're actually getting 10 schools to join the consortium. U of H is going to serve as the seed money. And what we'll do is create opportunities within the process of composition for this composer to interact via Zoom and Skype or whatever we decide because COVID, but also because of distance possibly with these students. So the students get to see the person that's writing the piece for them and they get to premiere it at their spring concert. And the process that we're gonna go through there is one that is hopefully going to be something that the students gain some insight into, oh, okay, well, this one, this is how we compose things. That's a, that's a thing I didn't know about. But two, hey, that person, he, might, he, he doesn't look like what I expected him or her to look like. Um, they're, you know, they, they might look more like the kids sitting in the chair, like because the, the districts are majority minority, there's a better chance of that. And then embedded within that, I'm going to do a research study looking at how students' musical self-image changes through this experience. And mm-hmm. can we tease a little bit of a signal from the noise of these middle school students' experience about this composition process? Because the goal there is we want to have a good idea of if this exposure stands a chance of changing the way kids view themselves as musicians, maybe engages a few of them in wanting to become a composer and that they see it, then they can be it in an easier way than it would be otherwise. This is again, not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all the problems, but it's a start. There's actually a guy in, I think he's at Harvard. He's somewhere up in that area. His name is Raj Shetty and he's looking at innovation is one of his things. Um, and what he found was that at the level of a census tract, which is like a hundred and some odd people in, within the census data, um, and it, it showed up everywhere else, when you look at innovation by patent filings, you find that people who file patents from a given census tract tend to look like people in that census tract who have filed patents. And so if there are black women filing patents in that census tract, you will see years down the road, there is a higher likelihood statistically of black women to file patents within that same domain. And so building on that framework, we're hoping that this interaction can start to plant the seeds for some of these students to go out and do the thing, whether it's composition or something else, in a way that looks more like the population that we're serving rather than this 95% of all composers are white men on these lists. I, I love the the fact that you're, you know, using research and your the background of your education and education in general to fuel, I think, um, what you do with, you know, analyzing and all the projects you're doing and something, I think it's a question that me and Michael kind of had and I'll kind of morph it into one to make it easier. But his question was more about how, like, I guess, like your research or how you chose research as a vessel with education and maybe how more or less how education fueled like the research that you have done to this day. Um, 
and, you know, just how in general, uh, I guess, yeah, re- your education and like working with the students that you've worked with has fueled the education or the research that you have chosen to do? That's a, that's a good question. And I'll be honest, the, my research trajectory is kind of all over the place because I also look at the ways that ensembles function from a, a temporal standpoint in terms of conductor to ensemble response and, and the qualities of that and all that stuff. So that's kind of like, I call that my hard science nerd hat and this is my social science nerd hat. Um, but all of these come out of my experience being a band director and working with students and seeing what does and doesn't work and wanting to know well, what's the, actually the best way to do this or actually what's going on here underneath the hood, underneath this, my preconception about what I think is happening, what's actually happening. And while I don't think we're ever going to be able to get to that point of like creating this model of like, oh, this ensemble is like this and this, and it's it. in my head, I see something that looks like Tron, which is probably not realistic. Mm-hmm. But the, the way that my background informed my research is that it planted questions that I wanted to answer. And as I was looking for opportunities in graduate school, the the ones that seemed to speak to me the strongest were the ones that gave me the tools to answer those questions or at least begin investigating those questions. And for my background, that's actually kind of a departure. I'm like, I'm a, a dyed in the wool band nerd, like similar to Michael. Like I wouldn't say marching band with my guilty pleasure. It was like my, my I'm going to wear this proudly. You know, I, I still have pictures of myself when I was three years old wearing a Madison Scouts t-shirt because that's the family I grew up in. My dad marched in the Cavaliers in 1967. And like, I did that thing. So that was my, my trajectory, my lineage, my lineage, so to speak. And this research thing what it's allowed me to do is kind of look at the things that I was involved in with a different set of tools and a different perspective and a different set of lenses that I can pick them apart a little bit and kind of go, okay, this is what's happening. And to the diversity piece that I'm in my social, social science nerd hat, the, the thing that is most palpable to me there is I've taught primarily in Title I schools. I've taught students who, I remember when we went to state marching contest here in Texas, there were kids that told me I've never been this far away from home. And the state marching contest is in San Antonio. It's three hours away. And in Texas, that's a short trip. And so that this was kind of the first experience for these kids and music allowed them to do that. It was like, well, this is really special. But then as you dig deeper and you guys know this, you start to find, oh, this there's like, this is totally imbalanced. Like there's just all these, areas of need that aren't being spoken to or these presuppositions we have about kids and about what they do that aren't really accurate to what's actually on the ground. And so what I've evolved over the years, and especially working with my students and in, in basically watching the way they respond to conversations like this or to experiences like Bassoon Gate, it gives me more information to make these decisions and, and to have these thoughts of, I have a ton of privilege. I have like this massive pile of privilege. I'm basically as privileged as you can get without access to massive amounts of money. That's the one thing I don't have. Everything else, mm-hmm. I am extremely lucky and privileged. And what I can do with that privilege is turn the spotlight over the people who maybe have to fight more. That the, the impediments they have to get over are bigger and harder to get around than mine were. And so I can take some of my privilege and use it to make an easier path for them, hopefully, to make this. The idea comes from this guy named John Rawls, who has a thought experiment called the Veil of Ignorance. And basically, he, he, it boils down to if you think about the fact that you had no choice where you were born, 
and who you were born to and what society you were born in. It's a lottery ticket that you didn't, that you got, but you didn't have any choice in how it turned out. What sort of world would you want to go into not knowing where you would land? Would you want it to be as uneven and unequal as it is now, or would you want it to be something that's much more consistent in its opportunities and supports? And the short answer is most everybody would want to make sure if they landed somewhere, they didn't know where they were going to land. They'd want it to be pretty fair and they want it to be pretty equal and be pretty supportive. And so that's what I'm trying to do in my own little way through this side of research while still looking at, okay, do we know that in the case of this commissioning um, project, what is the actual difference going to be in terms of what we can measure in the students? It's a, it's a net positive for creating a new work and for having students have these experiences, but is this a replicable model that we can turn more money into? We can go out and get more grants and get more of this to happen. If we see that it's something that actually changes students' experience and changes their perceptions of themselves, that's important to me because at the end of the day, I am the son of an educator. My mom was a kindergarten teacher forever and ever and ever. And I know that the individuals, the kids sitting in these ensembles are going to go off and do things that are unknown to me. But if I can set up a situation where they have the best possible experience doing music, that they have the best support to go as far as they want to with that music thing, then I'm doing right by them. I'm doing right by their families and I'm doing right by their children down the road if they choose to have them who will also, again, be set up to help build this thing, this music community that we have that isn't just about marching band. It isn't just about concert band. It's about being musical in the world for all the things that means. Mm -hmm. I hope I answered that question in, yes. I, I, guys, you, you, know the, you know the tattoo on my arm, the one day I will find the right words and they will be simple. Clearly, this is something I'm still working on. I love it. <laughs> I relate to it so much. Uh, yes. Like, wow. Thank you so much for, I mean, just sharing all that knowledge and everything that you've been working on, um, with us. And it's great to just still see our professors who we already thought were amazing, do more amazing things. So thank you so much for being here with us. And I don't know, just being the person you are and inspiring people the way that you do and everything that you do. So thank you. Well, thank you guys. I'm, I'm really thankful to get to talk with you guys and, and share the things I'm doing. And the, the great thing about being an academic is you have the flexibility and the room to go out and find things that are interesting, answer interesting questions, but also help move things forward in a way that is beneficial to everyone involved. And that's always the goal. So whatever I do that is good, I hope what it ends up being is a net positive for anyone that comes into contact with it. Wow, thank you so much. Um, I know we've learned a lot. I know our audience has learned a lot. So uh, please, everyone, please, please, please just say thank you in the comments to Dr. Mills for being here. We hope that y'all enjoyed this episode and we're definitely gonna be coming back with some great stuff. So have a great day, everybody. Bye.